Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Parker Palmer, Michael Lerner, and Diana Lindsay. Welcome to Widening Circles, the Lineage of Healing Circles Global. We are so delighted to have you here Today, we are going to have a very special treat today, and that is an intimate conversation between two old friends, Michael Lerner and Parker Palmer. I'm Diana Lindsay. I'm the co-director with Oren Schlossberg of Healing Circles Global. This is part two in a five-part series, and in today's conversation, which we'll get to shortly uh, we welcome Parker Palmer, who has been so inspirational to our work. And so now we're ready to begin. Michael Lerner is the president and co-founder of Commonweal, the Cancer Help Program, and also a blessing of my life, the co-founder of Healing Circles Global. He's dedicated his whole life to healing ourselves and healing the planet He'll be our host today with Parker Palmer. Welcome, Michael, back to the new school that you, in fact, founded. <laughs> Thank you, Diana. Uh, such a deep joy always to work together and to remember uh, the way Healing Circles actually started, uh, uh, which we may get to in this in the course of this conversation. And uh, Parker Palmer, it's so deeply honored and grateful to be with you today. Thank you, Michael. Yeah. Before I get to anything else, Parker, I just love to do things that kind of drop us right down into circle work. So why don't we just start with a moment of silence together, and then I'd love to ask you to share a poem that you've just been finishing up. So let's Let's all just go into silence for a moment together and in gratitude for being together and, and for the power of circle work. Peace, peace. Parker, would you be willing to share your poem? Well, <clears throat> thanks so much, Michael. It's just such a joy to be with you today and with all your colleagues and friends uh, in the wonderful work you've been doing all these years. So this is a poem that was inspired by this tiny little couplet from uh, Thoreau, which I read many years ago. It captured my imagination, and I've been tracking it ever since. And the poem has now come out in several editions, I guess. This is the latest. It's called The Poem I Would Have Writ, with this epigraph from Thoreau. My life has been a poem I would have writ but I could not both live and utter it. Those gentle whispers in the womb become insistent when you're born. You listen, for the day will come when you must speak words too. That's how we make our way across this trackless landscape called the world. But how and what to say and what does saying do? The first words are the hardest. Later, words come easily. You'll learn to speak the language of your wants and needs, looking for safe passage, reaching out for friends, finding work to do, allaying fears, healing wounds, offering chance on chance to give love and receive. 
Sometimes words escape your lips in ways you soon regret or appear out of the blue, begging to have life breathed into them by you. Then you learn that first words aren't the hardest. The hardest are the last. There's so much you want to say, but time keeps taking time and all your words away. How to say amid this flood of gratitude and grief, thank you, or how beautiful, how grand, or I don't know how I survived, or I was changed forever the day we two joined hands. As you reach for your last words, you realize this is it, this ebbing tide of language called your life, words trailing into silence, returning to the source, this unfinished poem you would have writ had you not been awash in wonder, grateful to be living it. Thank you, Parker. Let's just go into silence for a moment without. So often in your work, Parker, uh, when I've worked with you, as you often have, using poems as the what we call the third object, um, you often say a poem twice. Isn't that true? Yeah, I've, I've done that uh, copying David White, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Would you be willing to say the poem again? Absolutely. The poem I would have writ. My life has been the poem I would have writ but I could not both live and utter it. Henry David Thoreau. Those gentle whispers in the womb become insistent when you're born. You listen, for the day will come when you must speak words too. That's how we make our way across this trackless landscape called the world. But how and what to say and what does saying do? The first words are the hardest. Later, words come easily. You learn to speak the language of your wants and needs, looking for safe passage, reaching out for friends, finding work to do, allaying fears, healing wounds, offering chance on chance to give love and receive. Sometimes words escape your lips in ways you soon regret or appear out of the blue, begging to have life breathed into them by you. Then you learn that first words aren't the hardest, the hardest are the last. There's so much you want to say, but time keeps taking time and all your words away. How to say amid this flood of gratitude and grief, thank you, or how beautiful, how grand, or I don't know how I survived or I was changed forever the day we two joined hands. As you reach for your last words, you realize this is it, this ebbing tide of language called your life. Words trailing into silence, returning to the source. This unfinished poem you would have writ had you not been awash in wonder, grateful to be living it. Mm. When you do this, Parker, when I've been with you, you go through a poem stanza by stanza or part by part. Diana, can you leave the poem up for a moment? What strikes me, we won't go through it stanza by stanza, but um, just a few things come out for me. Um, 
the line that touches me most deeply uh, is uh, one of the most intimate lines in the poem, the line, I was changed forever the day we two joined hands. I was changed forever the day we two joined hands. Can you say anything about what evoked those lines for you? Yeah, it's a wonderful question, Michael. And, you know, having followed your Caringbridge site for many months now, I'm, I'm aware of how that might resonate for you. For me, it obviously has to do with a special relationship, but also a lot of other kinds of special relationships. This, the great power of friendship in our lives. And my own sense, Michael, is that when we meet someone whom we instantly or eventually come to regard as a friend, we've also met someone who's here on earth for some of the same reasons we are, that meaningful friendships are also a sign of shared vocation that friends converge somehow in their own answers to questions of meaning and purpose and service in the world. And that's certainly been true of my friendships over the years. Um, I don't know what my life would have been without them. I do know that my work would have meant very little without them. Um, they've enriched my work. They've advanced my work. It isn't my work. It's our work. People ask me sometimes, now that I'm 82, what, what is your legacy or what do you want your legacy to be? And I, my honest answer is I don't have a personal legacy. I have a communal legacy. It's, our, it's been our work. It's been our presence in the world. And without that, I, I don't know, you know what my life or work would have, would have been or meant. Hmm. Diana, can you keep the poem up for a little bit more because I want to draw on it. Um, the uh, first lines, uh, those gentle whispers in the womb become insistent when you're born. Uh, you listen for the day will come when you must speak words too. That's how we make our way across this trackless landscape called the world. Um, it suggests there, uh, and what you just said about friendship and um, how your legacy, if anything, is a communal legacy, and how we find our way toward each other, the people that we are put here to work with. There's some kind of quiet metaphysic of some kind behind those words. Uh, do you ever articulate that metaphysic, uh, what it means to you um, to say the gentle whispers in the womb become insistent when you're born? I mean, that suggests, as you suggested when you talked about how we find our way toward each other, some kind of metaphysic. Yeah, um, I love you, Michael, because you always go this way, <laughs> down to the particular and up to the platonic ideal idea when we, when we talk. That's a wonderful stretching exercise of mind and spirit. And I think, you know, the metaphysic for me has to do with something I've written about in relation to education, um, teaching and learning, the act of knowing itself. Everything is communal. Um, you know, there is nothing in this in the cosmos that stands on its own. Uh, 
it's it's all it's this intricate system of mutual influence and um, and therefore accountability, which is the metaphysic that should be at the heart of our politics, for example, <clears throat> or of our organizational life or of our relationships to one another. Um, truth be told, uh, one of my favorite metaphysicians is Kurt Vonnegut. And he, as you, you I'm sure recall, um, in I think Cat's Cradle, created a religion called Bokanonism, uh, parts of which I found myself drawn to. And in that religion, he makes a distinction between carasses and grand falloons. He says a grand falloon is an organization like General Motors or the Defense Department, which regards itself as highly organized and influential, but actually isn't doing any creative good in the world. Carasses, he says, are people whose lives connect and intersect, but they don't know it. Um, and that part of your mission in life is to find out who else is in your caress, but not to get organized, to just let that, that sort of random cosmic play of influences work themselves out. I've always, I've always loved that notion, that, which is not to diss all organizations and institutions. We have a lot of work to do. Um, uh, transforming organizations and institutions because they, they do heavy lifting in the world. But I do think that it's in that movement force field of caresses, of, of individuals who don't even know that they share a mission and then discover that they share a mission, which is sort of the story of every uh, influential social movement on the face of the earth. They discover it they, they kind of get minimally organized, but they are mainly a, a disruptive and rightly held creative force field, which is reshaping the hard frozen structures of institutional and organizational life. So uh, I guess, yeah, Kurt Vonnegut is one of my favorite metaphysicians. Uh, mine too, actually. Uh, not only... A but also one of the great commentators on philanthropy. His book, uh, God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, right. is considered an ur-text of philanthropy, a really <laughs> one of the must-read books about philanthropy, about this, this guy who just gives money away over the phone. and it's extraordinary. <laughs> I, I remember that. I also remember, Michael, you may remember this, that uh, <laughs> this guy was a passionate volunteer fireman that's yeah, right. In that novel, Vonnegut writes a classic line. He says, uh, Mr. Rosewater was had a, had a profound dedication to keeping your property and your loved ones from combining with oxygen. <laughs> <laughs> as an, you know, as everybody I know who lives in Indiana is, says, yeah, that's the case with a lot of us. <laughs> also, I think it's in Cod's Cradle, one of my very favorite Vonnegut quotes, maybe you know this one too, is strange travel instructions or dancing lessons from God. <laughs> I didn't remember that. Yeah, but... I love that. I, I live by that, you know. Somebody <laughs> tells me to go somewhere really strange and I, I try to follow because these are dancing lessons from God. That's great. Uh, this is a good moment. Uh, to ask Diana, we were chatting before the call, and I said to Diana, um, remind me of 
some of the the key uh, teachings from Parker that you have found most influential in Healing Circles work. So, Diana, uh, what was your list? Well, I love where this conversation has just been because it feels like random play Mm -hmm. and it feels like those moments that the hands joined. So we had, Michael and I and my husband, Kelly, had had that random moment of meeting each other within one day of Kelly and I deciding to start a center. And Michael said, well, I've been thinking about this idea called healing circles. And we said, sounds good to us. And then we set out to invent it, you know, really in a random way. Uh, I had had that experience that you also wrote in your poem of, I have survived how I had survived uh, a terminal diagnosis and just wanted to give back. So when we met Michael, uh, the focus really was on healing cancer. That had been Michael's work, and that had been the disease I had overcome. But we really wanted to give back to the whole community, just as you said, that we don't do this alone. We do this in a communal. So Michael said, well, you've got to read Parker. You've got to just sit down and read Parker before we can talk again. So uh, we read A Hidden Wholeness and it just really made a difference in our life. And Parker, I'd love to hear you say in just, you know, it's a whole book, it's a whole life, but what is A Hidden Wholeness to you? Because I don't want to interpret your work for you. Well, you've done a wonderful job of (laughs) transforming and translating my work into your work and Michael's work. And again, our shared work, just so many overlaps. So right where I sit here in my office, Diana, I have a large poster that I can see through the door out in the hallway of Thomas Merton kind of mystically behind some sort of pattern that the artist created. And the the, the picture is... the a photo originally it's circled by the quote that he uh, wrote um, in one of his essays about a hidden wholeness uh, where he says there is in all things a hidden wholeness and invisible fecundity etc um it it has simply it's a quote that has been with me for a very long time that you know obviously has a, a mystical dimension to it but it it speaks to me of the the importance of x-ray vision so that when everything looks lost on the surface and you're facing what's on the surface squarely, you're not looking away, you're not blinking it, you're not trying to evade it or avoid it. When everything looks lost, you can still squint your eyes a little and see beneath the broken surface a wholeness that's hidden. It's especially hidden from the headlines of our mass media. It's hidden from our gripe sessions and gossip circles. It's hidden from conventional political discourse. It's often hidden from conventional religious discourse, but but it's about cultivating that, that, that vision of 
what what you have to see through a third eye. I don't know how to, even how to say it. Um, X-ray vision works for me. Um, that uh, and it, that may be partly my training as a sociologist. Um, I'm a recovering sociologist, so there's a lot of the training I got at Berkeley that I've kind of walked away from um, in terms of certain narrow forms of empiricism. But I was greatly influenced by a book by C. Wright Mills called The Sociological Imagination. And I rather imagine that Michael had that influence in his life too. Um, it, it, it helped me understand that at the core of sociology is the capacity to imagine hidden patterns of relationship, influence, function and dysfunction among what just what looked to be like just people going to their offices or people showing up and playing their roles or not playing their roles. Um, so I've always been on the lookout for that. The more time I spend in nature, the more I understand what I think Merton himself, who was who lived in the woods um, uh, at the monastery in Kentucky, what he meant by hidden wholeness. That there are the, these underground uh, forces in, in nature that are, are actively collaborating with each other and with the great process of living and dying in a way that, that keeps making all things new. Um, and of course, we can talk about the environmental crisis and, and all of that, and yet still the sense that somehow, some way, maybe without us, nature will persist and rebound and find its way through. And I, I find great hope in that and great joy in that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we going back to you. Yeah, uh, I love that introduction. But 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 say more about the set of things that you find so central from Parker's teaching for healing circles work. Well, I had just been through a deep deep healing experience, and Michael had been doing it for forty years, and that it had been within the cancer world. So the idea of each of us individually searching for that wholeness within us, being willing to accept brokenness, being able to see beyond what consumes us in a day, that seemed like work for everybody. And so one of the key ideas, also in watching your center work primarily with educators and then with healthcare organizations, it seemed this was work for all of us. And so we wanted to open our center to everyone in our community and not just cancer patients. And your ideas about a circle of trust, if you don't mind, I'll share a screen with that we, we use in the first day of every Healing Circles global training. Um, because it's so eloquent about what a circle of trust is. If we're first, wholeness does not mean perfection. It means embracing brokenness as an integral part of life. If we're willing to embrace the challenge of becoming whole, we cannot embrace that challenge alone, at least not for long. We need trustworthy relationships to sustain us, tenacious communities of support. If we are to sustain the journey, toward an undivided life. 
So we loved that idea of a tenacious community of support and therefore wanted to open our doors, not only for one time, but for a lifetime. Uh, so what to you was that tenacious community of support? Well, it's been, it's taken many forms. And of course, it's involved intimate relationships with people I dearly and deeply love and with whom I have special and irreplaceable experiences. Um, and it's involved um, folks who've, who have become friends and come together around a shared vocation. And it's also involved strangers who have played roles in my lives that they may not even be aware of, although I try to eventually tell them um, whenever I become aware of that having happened. Um, the, I think, I think it, the, the whole idea of communal tenaciousness is a, is a really interesting one because it doesn't mean getting entangled with each other. <laughs> I, th I think entanglement, some, some kind of psychological or spiritual entanglement is the death knell of supportive and sustaining relationships. And in our culture, where, where we, I think, get messed up about what real intimacy looks like um, or how real intimacy works, um, there's a lot of that stickiness going around and it doesn't serve anyone well. I'll give you a very personal example. This is not something I've talked about publicly much. I've talked about my several descents into clinical depression. I've talked about that and I've written about that. I even feel a sense of mission or ministry about that because so many suffer from it. And I think it's just important to say, hey, welcome to the human race. You know, this is part of the experience of being fully alive in the world is to take deep dives into darkness sometimes and then uh, stand by and with each other um, to you know, help, help us find our way out or to somehow reassure us that we have what we need to make it through. But the story I want to tell is about a point where I fell into deep depression and I set out once again looking for the therapist to work with. The person I had worked with left town. I had to find a new one. I called three people. The first two of those people, and, and I forgive them for this, but maybe it's a story worth telling, quickly told me that they knew my work and my writing, and it would be an honor to work with me on trying to save my life from myself. And I just had to hang up as politely as possible, because I immediately felt the, the commodified and, and objectified as if saving me would be a feather in their professional cap. The third person I talked to, I eventually learned he probably knew my work, but he never said a word about it. He, he basically treated me in a way that's, that conveyed without words. Your well-being is up to you, Parker. I'm here to provide a space and a container where you can work that through with the kind of professionalism that gives you the space to do that and the structures that you may need to prop yourself up during this time 
when everything is in you and around you is falling apart. So that's a very intimate picture, I hope, of what I mean by entanglement and stickiness that isn't helpful to anybody. You know, I think when we set out to save each other, we lose everything before we begin. But I think if we if we walk with each other, if we stand faithfully by each other's side, I you know, I've we haven't talked much yet about the particulars of circles of trust, Diana, but um I just I'll just say this, maybe getting the cart a little bit ahead of the horse, that I've often thought that um that sitting in a circle of trust with 25 other people following the basic ground rules of no fixing, no saving, no advising, no correcting each other. Um, I've often felt that it's, it's closely akin to sitting at the bedside of a dying person. Because at the bedside of a dying person, in my experience, you learn definitively that there is nothing you can do to fix this up. You can't save this person. You can't fix this person. You can't straighten this person head out about what. So you don't. You learn not to be invasive, the way we often are with each other when we're struggling with stuff. You also have this profound instinct, if you're paying any attention at all, that being evasive would be an insult to start doing a crossword puzzle or to look out the window at something interesting happening on the street or to flip on the TV. I've asked a lot of people, so what are you doing there? And they all say the same thing. I'm, I'm practicing presence. I'm being as fully present to this person in extremis at, at that psych, part of the cycle of life as I, as I know how to be. And I, I've thought a lot that if, if I had such a person at my bedside when I was dying, I think that simple presence would convey to me a confidence that this person believed I had what it takes to, to see my way through. That, that on that ultimate solitary journey that you can only take by yourself. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Parker Palmer, Michael Lerner, and Diana Lindsay. Um, that that I think is what solitude while we're alive and well is is all about. It's practicing that that journey and then being learning to be present to one another in a way that supports it. And, and just one final thing. When I was in depression, when I was in deep depression, friends would visit me. But looking back on their behavior, I came to call it drive-by compassion. They'd pop in, hope you're feeling better, nice day outside, why don't you get out? Then they'd leave, as if I had a communicable disease, which in their minds, I did. They didn't want to hang around my darkness too long for fear they'd catch it themselves. There were a couple of people, and one story I love telling is about the man who came to my house and simply rubbed my feet every afternoon, massaged my feet with my permission, a dear friend who never missed a day but said very little when he was there. He, he reconnected me to the human race by finding the one place in my body 
that was alive enough to feel that connection. But the most important thing he did was he didn't run away. He was not afraid of me. And it's so often out of fear that we entangle ourselves in this determined effort to fix each other up, which always falls apart and leaves both parties in a bad place. Yes. I lost my husband, Kelly, who is the co-founder with Michael and I, uh, just before the pandemic. And we were able to have 16 of us in the room with him uh, for the last two days as he was dying. It is that beautiful sense of just being with someone. Mm -hmm. I find grief is very much that way too. There's no fixing that. There's just being with that. And Parker, you did indeed anticipate the third thing we took from you that was so vital was the no fixing, no saving, no giving advice, the the practice of the presence, really the practice of the presence of God. Yeah. Well, I was, if I may comment, thank you for your own story. I really appreciate that. And of course, there are different ways to practice that presence. I know that music can make a big difference in, in the right situation singing, uh, chanting, but the presence is what's underneath it all. Um, I I remember, Diana, when we began circles of trust work at the Fetzer Institute in Michigan back in 94, I think it was, um, I I had gathered this group of K through 12 teachers uh, for the first retreat on a two-year journey of eight retreats of three days each. So we were going to spend a substantial amount of time together. And I had 25 K through 12 teachers in this beautiful room. Um, And right up front on the first evening, I said, now, one of the things, one of the protocols we're going to observe over the next two years, 30 days of contact with each other, is no fixing, no saving, no advising, no correcting each other, no matter how difficult the issue, the problem somebody presents. We're going to hold that in a different kind of way. So no fixing, no saving, no advising, no correcting each other. And from across the circle, this anguished voice cries out, well, what in God's name are we going to do for the next two years? Those are the only things we know how to do or like to do. (laughs) And of course, that was a moment of recognition because this person was actually acknowledging that beyond that was terra incognita, you know. And and so I, I, I explained that we would learn to listen more deeply by having these behaviors prohibited and that we would also learn to ask honest, open questions to hear each other more deeply into speech, to quote uh, Nell Morton, a great feminist theologian. Um, So these honest open questions, which we actually train each other to do because they're not easy to ask, um, became the modality for communication, but the communication was with the speaker to herself or himself more deeply. You know, the question, the honest open question invites you to listen more deeply to what's going on inside of you. So 
you know, you said you were angry. Could you, can you say more about the nature of that anger, the quality of that anger, what that anger was about? Any question that allows someone to unpack a word that they've been using actually takes them into a place where maybe they find a different word or are more nuanced in what they were trying to say and learn something about themselves in the process. So I've often been struck by the fact that that the, 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 the teaching method here might be called the via negativa. That is, we don't tell people what to do. We tell them what they can't do in this setting. And once you've done that, once you've established boundary conditions, people are amazing at finding other forms of resourcefulness. And we've had so many people come back and say, these, the via negativa, the not doing, um, has enlivened my relation with my teenagers, my relation with my colleagues, my partnership, my marriage, whatever it may be. So that was a big learning right, right, to, right out of the gate in 1994. Yeah, and we learn so much from it and continue to learn. When I ask anybody, of all of our agreements, what's the one that provides the most power in your own life? That's the one. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Michael, I'll, I'll turn Thank it you, back Diana. to you. Thank That's, you so much. Ah, such a joy to have Diana with us. Um, So many directions we can go, Parker, but you were kind enough to be on uh, Diana's uh, first call with Christina Baldwin and Anne Linnea. And and as you know, their uh, circle work is the other major influence uh, for us, along with yours. And uh, we were chatting before the conversation here began, and you spoke of uh, the similarities, the creative differences, and the different origin stories. Could you elaborate on that? Because I think it would be so useful to people. I mean, these are our two great roots of our Healing Circles work, your work and the work of Christina and Anne. And uh, we have um, we have leaders uh, trained uh, in both and in one or the other. I think it would be really useful for people to hear your thoughts on what are the similarities, what are the creative differences, uh, how do the different origin stories play into this? Yeah, well, thank you, Michael. It's a great question. I I loved the session that uh, Diana did with Christina and Anne, and of course, I've always loved their work, but I hadn't had an opportunity to hear them talk more 360 about it, uh, you know, soup to nuts and around the, around the circle. And so it was a learning experience for me that I very much value. But the first thing I'd say is that they they began their work. I think it was in the early 90s. I can't quite remember. Uh, my, my circle work began in, I guess, 91 or 92 when I hooked up with the Fetzer Institute and began developing the what became the, <clears throat> the Center for Courage and Renewal. Um, I think it was sort of simultaneous invention. I wasn't aware of their work at the time. Um, They they began with a deep rooted in and respect for the ancient human practice of circle. Um, And they're very articulate about that. Mm -hmm. And in both of their cases, of course, Anne had made the great circle around 
I guess it was Lake Superior in a kayak and wrote a wonderful book about that. And, and so in both of their cases, deeply rooted in nature as well. And the, the, the great tradition of the circle, and, and I have to say with some embarrassment, the rooted in nature, that, that was not part of who I was at the time. Um, it's become much more a part of who I am, and I value that. But at the time, that wasn't what was animating me. What was animating me actually was my experience of doing a PhD at Berkeley in the 1960s. And being there at a time of, of the flowering of what was called circle work in that setting. But to make a long story short, I found the forms of circle work that I was exposed to in the 60s in Berkeley unsafe and exploitative. And I found it deeply offensive. Um, people kept talking about the human potential movement, and I was experiencing it more as a manipulative movement in which people were exploiting each other in various ways after somebody had made themselves vulnerable. And I, I don't have to go into chapter and verse, but I found it ugly. I found it off-putting. And yet, I began to develop during that same time in the 60s a circle pedagogy that I wanted to get people out of rows in classrooms. I wanted to get the teacher down from behind the, off the stage from behind the podium. I wanted us to sit together and actually emulate in the, in the physical modeling of the space, the communal dynamics of knowing, teaching, and learning at their best. I began to develop I won't go too far down this road, but I began to develop a little formula in my mind that every epistemology, every way of knowing becomes a pedagogy, a way of teaching and learning, and every pedagogy becomes an ethic, a way of behaving in the world. And when you start with an objectivist epistemology that distances people from each other and from the world, symbolized by the sage on the stage behind the podium, and the students with their heads buried in their notebooks, just recording factoids to feedback on the test, you, you are reflecting a bogus epistemology. That's not how knowing works. You're, you're practicing a deforming pedagogy, and the deformation pops up in people living in a world from which they distance themselves ethically and morally. You know, it didn't, the, the Holocaust didn't happen here. That was on some other planet. To some other species. And I found all of that uh, wrong, <laughs> just flat wrong. I've, I've often said, you know, it, it, I'm fine with all of that, except for the fact that it's untrue and morally deforming. Other than that, it's a fine program. Um, so I, 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 I wanted, I, I was torn between these, what I thought were bogus examples of circle and the, the power of circle in pedagogy. And when I had an opportunity at the Fetzer Institute in the early 90s to start developing a retreat and renewal program for K through 12 educators, um, I, I realized, okay, this is an opportunity to, to put, to bring together what I think I know about epistemology, pedagogy, and ethics 
with what I think I know about safe space for the human soul to make its claim on our lives. And I've always said, if the world soul, if the word soul doesn't work for you, that's fine. It's known by a thousand names and a thousand traditions. For humanists, it's identity and integrity. For the Hasids, it's the spark of the divine in every being. For Thomas Merton, it was true self. For Quakers, it's the inner light or the inner teacher, etc. What you name it doesn't matter to me, but that you name it something, it being the being and human being, is, I think, critical. Because in the absence of a name for it, that's when we start treating each other like objects to be manipulated or commodities to be shaped for the market. So thanks to Fetzer's generous support, and then thanks to Rick Jackson and Marcy Jackson for coming along as friends and colleagues at, at the time when Fetzer said, okay, we've piloted this program. Um, let's help you establish a 501c3 to carry it further into the world. They brought, the Jacksons brought gifts to this that I don't possess, and there wouldn't be a center for courage and renewal without them. Um, it's been one of those fruitful collective, you know, legacies over the years based on friendship. Um, brought all this together in, in a program that whose, whose primary aim was to make the space really, really safe for people to tell the deepest truths of their lives, their hopes and their fears, their talk about their gifts and their and their struggles, their failures, um, without fear, without embarrassment, without a sense of shame, knowing that the, the purpose of the whole group was not to fix them or save them or correct them, but to give them a deeper dialogue with their own um, most profound inner sources and began developing the skillful means to do that, began developing a facilitator training program that would prepare what's now several hundred people to honor the promissory note that we put out that when you come to this space, your soul will be safe. Um, you, this, this will be a place where all of the principles that allow you to flourish like a plant from your own roots, from the inside out. We're not going to treat you like a problem to be solved or a broken machine to be fixed. We're going to give you the conditions for growth from the inside out. Facilitators who could assure that that's what happens when somebody says, that promissory note sounds good to me. I'm going to come and give it a try. And that's what we've been doing ever since for the past 25 years. Yeah, the first time I experienced your work was at Fetzer, um, uh, where I was part, I think twice, of uh, two of your circles there. Um, you know, it's so rare that a foundation actually manages to do something creative and useful. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, you know, they screw it up so badly so often. And Fetzer has, uh, in this and other instances, done some really remarkably useful things. And um, uh, 
So going back to the question about similarities, creative differences uh, with uh, uh, Christina and Anne's work, I mean, one that strikes me right off the bat is that our trainings of, um, uh, you know, uh, conveners and uh, guardians and so forth are very brief. You know, it's a weekend training or something like that. And then, uh, and then people are launched, but they're invited into a circle of hosts where they can continue to refine their experience. Your training is, um, is deep and deliberate. Uh, and uh, and requires a lot of uh, of commitment and so forth. So that's clearly one uh, creative difference right there. It's just in the in the nature of uh, of how we convene the circles. Um, but what other uh, similarities and creative differences do you see? Well, let me let me just work with that one for a minute, Michael, because I think it'll open up into into some others. I deeply admire the way. Uh, Christina and Anne um, put a lot of trust in the group um, yeah. and, and a lot of trust in the self-governance of the group um, and, and great fruit has been grown from that setting in the lives of many, many, many people, including in, in your circles. Um, Life is paradox. And so at the other end of the paradox, I felt a need because we were moving into contested institutional territory. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Fetzer Institute said, we want you to show up in public schools with a spiritual life program that if you don't do it well, will be tossed out on the basis of church state concerns. Mm -hmm. So, you know, watch your step and and open a space where people who are otherwise in competitive professional relationships can start getting honest with each other, which is a sort of different challenge very different. Than, than just, you know, if, if you're very, very sick or if, if you have a terminal diagnosis, come to us. There's, there's a, there are all kinds of built-in covenants in, in that situation that didn't exist in ours. So we had to very carefully craft our program um, to, for example, draw spiritual life metaphors from the cycles of nature rather than from the official language of anybody's tradition. You know, we couldn't even name like 12 different religions that have informed this and expect to get away with it because nervous superintendents and principals would say, not here, no way, we're not going to let that happen. And that was, you know, our initial charge was, uh, was other than that. So I entered this design and, and experimentation phase with a, a sense that we needed to facilitate this program strongly, <laughs> that we needed to create spaces that would honor that promissory note, and that we needed to do that down to a micro level of, of um, delivery. And I'll, I'll give you a quick example. There's so many examples that are they're tricky to talk about, but let me give you an example. One of the things that we promise in our work is that if you come into this circle, everything that is presented to you will be invitational, not mandatory, right? Um, I think that's a common offering in a lot of situations, but we make it very explicit, invitational, not required. I, 
my one of my early lines was this is not a share or die event because I had been in circles at Berkeley that were share or die events. If you didn't share, suddenly somebody was in your face with what's wrong with you, you know. Um, so um, in, 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 in a lot of circumstances, that's fairly easy to honor, that, 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 that notion that everything is invitational. Uh, you know, you honor it by saying, if, if you don't want to be in this small group, you don't have to be in this small group. Take a walk if you wish. If you want to be in a small group, but you don't want to answer the question we've posed, bring your own question. If you want to be there as an auditor, just be there as an auditor. Just tell the other people what you're doing so that nobody's wondering if you're waiting for a chance to speak. But then there are these subtle moments. And, and one happened One happened in my very first retreat. At the, at the end of the evening, we had gone around with brief self-introductions. Um, people probably talked, you know, a minute, minute and a half each about who they were and answered a key question. As the, I was sitting up there in the facilitator chair, keeping a list and realized as, as we got close to closing time, that one person had not said a word. And I wondered, I hadn't anticipated this. What do I do about that? I have this invitational uh, promise out there and this person hasn't introduced themselves. And, and, and what, what came to me was a, a, a downside possibility and an upside possibility. If I had looked at that person and then looked at my watch and sort of non-verbally communicated, uh, it's getting late, how, how about you, Bill? <clears throat> that would have violated the invitational principle. However, I had the option of simply looking at the candle in the center of the circle, not at anybody, and saying, I'm going to keep this circle open for a couple more minutes in case there's anybody else who'd like to speak. And then we'll close out for the evening. Two, three minutes later, we closed out for the evening and that person had not spoken. The next morning at breakfast, that person came up to me and said, you know, I've been to a lot of staff development events that do not keep their promises. And I was very suspicious of this. But when you didn't put me on the spot last night, to introduce myself, I decided to trust. And I'm so glad I did because I now feel ready to enter the group. May I introduce myself this morning? And I said, of course. But that's a learned skill, I think, for the facilitator to have a response ready that doesn't violate your principles at even the most subtle level. And because we were in contested institutional space, we were working with people who, who spent their, their lunch hours in the cafeteria griping about the principle rather than talking about the possibilities of teaching, let alone drawing on their own, um, their, their own vocational passions to care for kids. We had to be very cautious about these things. And that's where some of, some of this came from, of course. I'll say at the same time, again, life is paradox. A good facilitator knows how to hold this complexity while being very relaxed, while 
having a non-anxious presence. You have to maintain the boundaries. You have to maintain the ground rules or everything begins to shut down. But you have to be calm and composed about it. And that's why we spend a couple of years. That's one of the reasons we spend a couple of years training people to do the facilitative task. A year of, of fair, you know, direct dis discussion and instruction in community, and then a year of mentoring with uh, an experienced facilitator. No, I think that's beautiful. It's a beautiful way to do it. Just to be clear, there's a difference between uh, we, we've drawn deeply on your work and Christina and Anne's work, but they did a lot of, you know, for example, work in corporations and so forth, mm -hmm. uh, as well as with a wide variety of other groups. So Healing Circles is the place that we've been working with people with, with wounds. Of course, we all work with people with wounds, but uh, explicitly with wounds like cancer. Uh, and uh, so I just want to be sure that uh, in making the comparison, that what you're really comparing to is where we've gone with healing circles in terms mm -hmm. of the kinds right, of... Right, right, yeah. Um, and um, I do want to ask you one more time at the risk of asking twice... <laughs> about an underlying metaphysic. Uh, and I want to connect that question to the question of the impact on your circle work of your Quaker background. I looked at your bio again this morning, and at least what I saw, it didn't tell me whether you were raised in a Quaker family. It told me about your you know, encounter with the Quaker community when you moved back east um, and I'm just curious, were you born into the Quaker tradition? No, I wasn't. I was, I was born into the Methodist tradition oh, in uh, suburban Chicago. And uh, um, I, I grew up there. Um, you know, the, the uh, formal adult ministry of the church didn't have a big impact on me, but we had a very gifted youth director um, in a community that was very stratified in terms of the lives, the life at high school, for example, where you had a very distinct class structure, he created something much more like the uh, the beloved community in our Methodist youth group, and I benefited greatly from that. You know, just had that kind of absorptive kind of education in what community looks like. And then I went to Carleton College, studied religion there with some really brilliant people, including Ian Barber and. Uh, David Maitland and Bard Smith, and and then um, spent a year at Union Theological Seminary thinking maybe ministry was part of my call until God told me she didn't want me messing up her church and sent me out to Berkeley in the 60s after just a year at Union. So um, I, I, you know, I had traveled widely in, in religious circles at, at the level of higher education and experientially as well, but um, had never heard about Quakerism. And then through an odd series of events, which actually involved taking in a young woman in trouble into our home in Washington, D.C., when I was a community organizer there, her parents came to bring her home. And they were Quakers, and they, were, they told us about this place called Pendle Hill, 
where I then took a sabbatical with my family and we ended up staying for a decade, Pendle Hill being an adult living learning community near Philadelphia that was established by some Quaker greats like Douglas Steer and Rufus Jones. And it was established in 1930 as a kind of living laboratory of Quaker faith and practice. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Parker Palmer, Michael Lerner, and Diana Lindsay. So there wasn't any better immersion available. And I became dean of studies there after a year as an adult student. And I found myself um, so at home in that that milieu, in that communal milieu. Um, It was a very radically egalitarian community. Everybody there made the same amount of money, no matter what your credentials or what your role, lived that way for 10 years, which was in itself a great education. Um, and I found myself so deeply at home in, in that environment that I, I somehow felt like I had found a path that was neither Protestant nor Catholic, and Quakerism is something different from either of those traditions. I had discovered Thomas Merton when I was a community organizer, and his brand of mysticism had spoken deeply to me. But married with two kids, probably monasticism wasn't an option. So uh, Pendle Hill provided something uh, for a person with a family who wanted the communal dimension of, of, of an ongoing spiritual journey that in the Quaker case was constantly looping back out into the world, what I've came to call life on the Mobius strip, from the inner to the outer with Quakers' disproportionate representation in great movements of social change. I, I think, Michael, what a lot of what I learned about Circle um, certainly comes from the Quaker experience of the, the silent meeting for worship, for example, where which is based in silence, but from which people speak as moved by the spirit to speak. Um, one of the sayings that went around Pendle Hill was from Martin Buber, uh, with whom the Quakers had a very congenial relationship. He said, all real living is meeting. And I, I got this notion that what happens in a real circle is that we don't chit chat around the circumference of the circle, but each person moves to his or her own center in a circle rightly held, and we end up meeting in the center of the circle at a new level that isn't possible when the when it's all turn left, turn right, let's talk. Um, and in a lot of ways, that very simple image of what I found happening at Pendle Hill in everything we did, um, Quakers refer to their business meetings as meetings for worship on the occasion of business. So this, this kind of rooted in silence, sitting in a circle, not in rows, nobody at the head, the community working things out, but following protocols that involve when to speak, when to listen, um, how, how never to have to resort to majority rule because Quakers regard that as a form of violence when 51% of the people can tell 49% of the people where to get off. Um, all of that just came together for me in, in a pedagogy that ended up being manifested in that um, pilot program at 
at Fetzer, which was the help of, of Rick and Marcy Jackson and a, lot, a number of people I'm seeing on this, on this webinar, um, has, has grown into, I, I, I hope and believe, a gift to some sectors of the world. Let me ask um, another question, Parker. Um, as you may remember from my Caring Bridge site, uh, but also from things I've written at Camo, actually you may not know this. To me, the Quakers are what I would aspire uh, Commonweal and all our circle work to be. Uh, if you look at them, they've never been more than a small minority. Um, I think it's like it's either 200 or 300,000 Quakers worldwide, adult Quakers worldwide, half of them in Africa, by the way, half right. of them in Africa, and the rest scattered between the United States and the UK and a few other countries. And yet, if you look at this tiny group of people, they have been at the forefront of all the great human and environmental rights struggles since slavery onward. I remember vividly you're talking about the role of the Quakers in the ending of slavery. And so, to me, uh, one of the things that has been powerful about your work has been uh, your explicit engagement with activism. Uh, now, that's not something we do uh, for the most part in Healing Circles Global. We're mostly about personal healing. We, we go to, you know, to some areas of that on racial justice and so forth. But our, our core work, for the most part, has been in uh, personal healing in different ways. You have gone explicitly to that area um, with your work on, you know, creating a politics worthy of uh, the human soul and democracies, with your work on uh, standing in the tragic gap. So uh, in this moment in the United States, where we are so deeply divided, um, where do you find any hope? of a, a democratic politics worthy of the human soul. In the hidden wholeness. <laughs> right. I think this is where you really need x-ray vision um, to see something beneath the very broken surface of our lives. And true confession, um, I aspire to be a Quaker. <laughs> I aspire to be a person of nonviolence. I'll never be able to say I'm, I got there. Um, it's a constant struggle for me. Uh, in my in my most recent book, <clears throat> On the Brink of Everything, published two years ago, <clears throat> I have a chapter called "What's an Angry Quaker to Do," uh, which is about my response to the to the current political situation. I learned. I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. You know this story, Michael. At least pieces of it. So two days ago, speaking of activism and engagement, um, I was invited along with a dear friend of mine, Greg Ellison, who is uh, an African-American theologian and teacher uh, at Candler Seminary in, um, uh, at Emory University uh, in Georgia. Um, we were, the two of us were invited to present at the Lincoln, Nebraska annual prayer breakfast, um, which involves 
um, a very wide range of traditions uh, representing people who live in, represented by people who live in that community, and an ongoing effort on, on, in this town in the upper Midwest um, to um, weave together uh, some real challenges faced by people left, right, and center over the last decade or so. Um, really an effort uh, on the part of many to uh, move closer to the beloved community. Our friend and your friend, Michael, uh, Preta Bansal, who's very much involved with uh, service space and with the daily good uh, and the awaken calls. Some of you will know that wonderful work. Uh, lives in Lincoln. She grew up there and she returned there after her service in the Obama administration in the, as head of the Office of Management and Budget. So she's a person with wide-ranging experience and some really remarkable approaches to community building. So she invited Greg and me to um, present uh, as a team at this annual prayer breakfast. This happened just two days ago, so it's very fresh with me. Greg and I wanted to get into challenging issues about race and about justice um, and about community building in contentious times. And working with Preta, we found a way in. And I'm still, um, I'm still awash in the wonder of what happened. Our way in was simply to tell the story of how we met. Greg, who's half my age, who's black, not white, um, reached out to me about 10 years ago. I'd like to come sit with you in Madison, Wisconsin for a few days and talk about my work and your work. So we sat and talked. Early on, he was putting together some family history and talked about how his father, his grandfather had had to flee Mississippi for fear of his life and his family's life back in the 20s or 30s. He said I, he came to Iowa, and I'm, I can't quite remember the town where he settled, and I said, might it have been Waterloo? It was an easy guess for me because my dad grew up in Waterloo, and I figured Waterloo was one of the few places at that time in Iowa where a black family might find a home and work. And he said, yeah, it was. And then he said he went to work somewhere, I'm not sure where. Might it have been Rath Packing Company, I said. And he said, yeah, it was. <laughs> and I knew that because my aunt had worked at Rath Packing Company for many years. And he ran into the kitchen. He got on the phone. He called his aunt, uh, Dottie, who lives somewhere in the Midwest at the time. She was in her 90s. And said, tell me that family story again. I'm here with a friend and I need the details. And she said, oh, well, when your grandfather got to, to Waterloo, he was helped to get that job at Rath by uh, some uh, old man Palmer, who, was the, who we called the good white man. <laughs> and Greg came back out onto the porch. He says, cousin Parker. <laughs> and we're suddenly family members with each other. So we told this story. We told it fairly efficiently so as not to burn up all of our 35 minutes. And then we invited each other to talk about the work that we do. Me with the Center for Courage and Renewal and Greg with Fearless Dialogues, which is a great national program that people should look into 
He has a book called Fearless Dialogues. And then we spent about 10 minutes talking about the, the religious roots, especially the roots in Howard Thurman, who was a fellow traveler with Quakers. And we said some things along the way about how the solution to our race, to problems of justice, begins with reaching across lines and making friends and learning how the world looks from other people's point of view and finding companionship and friendship and shared vocation that isn't all about getting up on a soapbox and, and making ideological points. And the reports we've gotten from this very large audience in Lincoln, where the annual prayer breakfast hosted by the mayor and sponsored by a dozen or more religious communities in town of every stripe and nationality and, and, and belief, the reports have been left, right, and center uniformly positive, excited. This is a model for how to go forward. So I'm, I'm on a learning curve. There's a, there's a lot in me that wants to get out there and make points, right? But when I'm at my best, I'm telling stories. I'm working with friends. I'm modeling something different than exists in the world right now. And lo and behold, people get touched and people get moved and people get drawn into a force field that, that their path in life may have not given them an opportunity or the privilege to experience. Um, I think writers get a lot of privileges because we connect with folks we've never met. And if we're lucky, those connections may come face to face. And suddenly we discover we have a cousin of a different race and a different lineage who really is family. Hmm. You, Parker, you just mentioned your book on the brink of everything. And there's a couple of questions here. One from Jane Smith. Could you define well-being? And has that definition changed over time? Has it evolved with age and sickness and life experience? And uh, from Christina Baldwin, what is distinctive about your learning curve now in your 80s? <laughs> well, those, are, those are such great questions. These are all great questions. I'm going to challenge Michael a little bit. I, I don't think he's lost his power. I think he's, his, powers, <laughs> his powers keep... I just fixed the power. <laughs> I think your powers keep getting greater. I've known you for a long time. It's wonderful to see. So, Diana, thank you. And thank you, uh, Christina. And the other questioner was... Jane Smith. Jane. Okay, thank you. So, Christina, my... my learning curve in my 80s um, is, is, is I think, um, in, in some ways, I'm much closer to beginner's mind than I ever have been in the past. I think when I was younger, I spent too much time faking it like I knew. <laughs> but like, like these days, there, you know, it's not worth the effort to fake it. Uh, just be here as someone. I mean, I've often said that I was that when people have asked me what motivates, what's motivated your work, 
over the years. I've often said I was born baffled. And every all, all the work I've ever done has been about trying to peel back a, a layer of bafflement to understand what's underneath my current bafflement, only to discover that there's another layer of bafflement to peel back and work on. I mean, I think I came out of the womb looking around saying, what's this all about? You know, this is madness. And that's been driving me ever since. But now that the, the beginner's mind that's signified by a phrase like born baffled is much more real for me than it's ever been before. I keep moving farther away from thinking I have it all figured out. And that really helps helps me stay alive. It also, incidentally, helps me connect powerfully with people half my age and less um, who are struggling with stuff. They may come to me to talk about it, and, and then they discover that I'm baffled too, and, and we become friends because of our mutual bafflement. You know, I, so beginner's mind plus the gratitude, the deep and profound gratitude that I'm still here to talk with you and to wrestle with these questions and to be illumined by my friends um, is, the gratitude is, is immense and it carries me day by day. Now, the other question was, um, can you reboot that question for me? The, from Yes, the, please define well-being. Has it has it changed over time and evolved with age, sickness, and life experience? Yeah, it has. I mean, I think I probably, like a lot of people in this culture, um, I once thought of well-being as a kind of steady state of happiness and uh, success, uh, more often than not, a lot more often than not. One of my observations early in my life as a person who enjoyed some early successes was one of my questions was, why does my sense of success only last for a day or two? And then I'm asking, where am I going to get the next big hit? You know, uh, there's it's addictive when you hold it that way. Um, <clears throat> so. Um, my sense of well-being has changed significantly. And I think it has a lot to do with the quote, uh, Diana, that you put up early on about um, wholeness does not mean perfection. Uh, well-being does not mean perfection. It means a, a capacity to integrate uh, that which is broken in, in you into your sense of the whole. I mean, for, for me, there has been, it took me 10 years to start writing and talking about my first descent into deep depression. Um, but once, once I felt like I had it fully integrated into my sense of self enough, I was able to start talking and writing about it. I don't think one should talk about it until it's deeply enough integrated that you, that you can speak of it without people feeling like he's going to fall apart. That doesn't serve anyone well. Um, but when you can offer it up as, as a service, because it is integrated in you, then, then you may well feel the call to do that. I, I felt the call to do that. And 
uh, have to say that in, in, the, in the wake of that, I have felt more at home in my own skin for having done that, for just being present in the world in that regard as I am without trying to hide that out from anybody um, than, I, than I ever felt before. And so what keeps me on that path is, is this profound sense of well-being that I get from being as true as I feel able to be to who I am as a, in my public role as, as well as my private life. You know, there's a great, there's a great quote from, uh, there's a great book by um, Florida Scott Maxwell that she wrote in her 80s. And she there's a great quote in there that I've often used and my memory is shot, so I can't bring it all back. But she basically says, you know, to, you, you, you only need to claim all you have said and done as yes, that's me, I am all of the above in order to become fierce with reality. And I love that notion. And there's in some sense in which I'm not as concerned about being about my own well-being as I am about being fierce with reality. So Parker, there's a beautiful note again from Christina Baldwin, uh, which is obviously Parker and we are caresses, and the circle itself was cosmically playing us, making sure it came back into mainstream culture at a time we needed it to survive. Thank you so much, Parker the integral and magnificent way you carry the circle seed. Oh my, what a, what a gift. Thank you, thank you, Christina. Thank you so much. I, I, I hope I can get a copy of that. I, I treasure it. I'll probably have it framed and hung next to my Merton. Yeah, we'll, we'll make sure you do. We'll capture the chat. Thank you. Uh, getting very close to the end here. Um, there's so much we haven't talked about, Parker. I could do this for another two hours. I, I have to say that one of the things you inspire me to do is to re-examine, uh, which is very hard for me, my deep effort to leave politics at the door of circle work and the cancer help program in the interest of enabling people to meet on the common ground of deep healing work and leaving politics aside. And that's been challenged in good ways. And I'm glad that Healing Circles Global is entering some of those waters. But it's those have never been waters that I've been comfortable entering. And, and yet I have a very strong activist engaged side that we do through other programs at Commonweal. And so your work here uh, challenges me to re-examine that presumption uh, that I can't see a good way to do that. That's one thing I'll say. And the other thing that we didn't get a chance to talk about is, um, you know, and we've talked about this offline from here, but there are times when people come to me for counsel. And, uh, and if I just feed it back to them, which I often do, you know, well, what is coming up for you, what is emerging for you, and see if they can resolve it. But there are also times when just from experience or expertise or whatever it is, 
I actually have something to offer that they actually want. Mm-hmm. And so it's the, it's the question of how to work skillfully with that edge that um, would be a topic for another time, I think. Yeah. Um, I'll, if I may, Michael, I'll just make a quick comment on each of those things because okay. they're so important. On the yeah. second one, I think, you know, if you have an explicit contract with somebody yeah. or for X rather than Y or Z, yeah. then it's then it's fair enough that yeah. that's what they're asking for. My only hesitation on that is that sometimes people come to me asking for advice because they they lack a certainty in themselves. They're so filled with self-doubt that I, that my instinct is I first want to help you get past the self-doubt that makes you imagine that I have the answer to your problem. I, I, and I'll, it's a situational thing, right? There's no one size fits all. But there are times when I'll feel, especially with a younger person who hasn't really been taught to process their own experience and assess their own gifts, that I'll take it in that direction before I give something more directive if that's what the person truly wants. On the, on the politics question, I really understand your struggle. I have the same struggle. Um, I, I think it, I did this in the Healing the Heart of Democracy. I'll do it briefly here. I think it's very important to recognize that politics isn't all about institutional politics. It's not all about politics, and you know this as well as I do, it isn't all about what leads to a vote or what leads to a policy resolution or a policy statement. There's there's this whole, what I call, pre-political level in a democracy, the level that Alexis de Tocqueville wrote about in Democracy in America, the level of voluntary associations, of neighborhoods, of family life, of healing circles, of the circle work we do, where we have a chance to model for people the habits of the heart, and to inculcate in people the habits of the heart that help make a democracy work. And to me, that's politically relevant work. I I get annoyed when I hear churches struggle with, should we be politically relevant or not? Well, whatever you're doing, you're being politically relevant. If, If you're sitting people in rows and asking them to listen to the authority and nothing more, you're engaged in a certain form of political formation. Of, of, of those people. I don't think it's good formation for citizenship, but you are forming them in a political fashion that has political consequences. If you're getting people more engaged and, 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 and more communally um, searching and involved, holding open questions, reaching out for differences and welcoming the conversation, then you're, in, then you're doing something else. You're forming people in habits of the heart that are closer to the mark for a democratic system. So I don't think, I, 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 in some ways, there are days, Michael, when I think it's hard to be politically irrelevant. Silence is politically relevant. Speaking out is politically relevant and everything in between. So on certain days, I just want to get that monkey off my own back. Mm, beautiful. Well, Parker Palmer, uh, I am so honored by our friendship, by the many years that we've walked um, encountering each other again and again. Uh, I'm so grateful that you were willing to join us in uh, this widening circles uh, 
lineage conversation. Um, I'm so touched. I, I wish us both more years of service and joy. Uh, I wish that for everyone on this call. But truly, your friendship um, so touches me. I'm, I'm really so grateful. Well, Michael, I'll just say it simply as I have on Caring Bridge. I love you. I love you very much. And I've followed this journey with a great feeling and such deep gratitude that we could do this today. I know. We're still and both here. <laughs> we're, still <laughs> we're, we're, we're still here. And yeah. we both may be baffled by that, but let us love the oh. bafflement. <laughs> well, I love you too, Parker Palmer. I, and I'm so grateful. So with that, I will turn it over to Diana Lindsay to do our close. Thank you. Thank you both so much. What a treat to be with you. We're glad you're both still here. And we, uh, we look forward to coming into a deeper sense of our own bafflement <laughs> as we move forward. I hope for everybody that today has inspired you into circle work following either the work of the Center for Courage and Renewal, Christina Baldwin and Anne Linnea's Circle Way, or Healing Circles Global. This has been a fundraiser. If there's any way you can give anything, either of your time or your finances, we deeply appreciate that. This recording will be available on the New School at Commonweal. It will be available on the Healing Circles Global website. And we thank Doron Harvav and Ken Adams for providing the technical support today. We look forward to seeing you in, back in two weeks when Michael Lerner will have a conversation with Janie Brown from the Kalanish Society. So thank you all so much for being with us. Thank you, Parker. Thank you, Michael. Have a very good rest of your day. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Parker Palmer, Michael Lerner, and Diana Lindsay. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams, and our theme music is by Jeremy Cohen. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening.